This is the Final Fix Podcast. This is just real people having real conversations surrounding substance abuse and the way addiction impacts communities. We're three brothers who have experienced addiction through a family member. We each have unique perspectives to the same situation, and as we have healed through discussing, we want to share our experience and speak with others who have been affected by substance abuse. Our goal with this podcast is to spread awareness of the harm of substance abuse. To talk to real people about their experience and how they've healed and to learn more about the role that substance abuse plays in communities and families. We are not experts, just brothers who have had our own experiences around addiction and want to help others by facilitating conversations. Please be aware that some of these conversations may be difficult and triggering. Any episodes that feature adult content will be labeled as explicit and may not be appropriate for children. Welcome back. This is the Final Fix podcast. Uh, Back again. We're missing Dominic this episode. He's got some stuff going on so we're going solo without him today but he will be back soon don't worry about him we're here with another police officer a good friend of ours i'm uh, going by jay we'll go ahead and let him introduce himself yeah so uh going by jay just today uh nowadays you know i don't know what uh what certain departments things like and don't like but i'm happy to share my perspective um been in law enforcement for about five years doing patrol uh in you know a state outside of washington and now here in the greater seattle area you know dealt with a variety of things with when it comes especially when it comes to drugs narcotics and you know people that have been using in the different instances that affect them and their families um so kind of i guess a a different perspective and kind of maybe a similar perspective from the other uh police officer that was on the show and i've heard you know, all the other guests and they've got great perspectives and it's, it's pretty cool to hear, um, coming directly from them gives me a better understanding, uh, as well as some of the people I deal with. So, uh, figured maybe, you know, a perspective again, coming from, you know, the police officers to the other, those listening to my family members struggling and they're struggling, uh, might give them an idea of kind of where we're at and try to find some mutual ground so that if ever comes, you know, where there's contact between us and them, that it's a little bit more, mutually respected and understood and work with each other a little bit better, make everything better. So happy to be on here. Appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, of course. I think that's something that a lot of people uh, have, you know, just after the last uh, time we spoke with an officer, like talking with Dominic, the perspective Mm -hmm. was just different because unless you're in the situation where you're dealing with law enforcement on a regular basis, you know, you have, you might have something in your head on how it's going to be or how they react, how they think about, uh, people that are dealing with mental health crisis or with addiction, substance abuse. And so it's, it's always refreshing. Just like the three of us had different perspectives on the same situation. You and another officer from across the country are going to have different perspective. So, um, yeah, we appreciate you being on, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to start off what, what led you to pursue law enforcement? What was the kind of driving force there? Uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's the cliche answer of I've wanted to help people and do good things, which I mean, that, there's just truth to that. But honestly, ever since I was a little kid, man, I wanted to drive cars fast and shoot guns and, you know, run around having a good old time. Um, so that, that was, that was a big thing of it. But the other thing that I've always enjoyed, I mean, I've always, looked up to throughout my life. I, I mean, I grew up watching cops and I grew up watching a bunch of, you know, military war movies, looked over people, looked people in the military, things they did. I always thought it was super cool and, you know, respectable and, and, and the, the work they did to help people, right. That have difficulty helping themselves. That was a, the, the main draw for me. Right. Cause there's a lot of people that, um, aren't as fortunate and I've been very blessed in my life with the life that I've you know, been given and, you know, my physical health and mental health and things like that, where I'm in a a place where I can take care of myself and those I love. And and there's other people that may not be as fortunate. And so I figure using those, those abilities and those blessings that I've been given, right. To, to lift up those people that can't do it for themselves, um, is, is kind of, you know, one of the things I really like about my job and the freedom to do that, um, in lots of different ways to do it. Um, so that's kind of what, what led me this route. Um, I went, I went to college for a little while for criminal justice. Then I switched over, got my degree in health science, um, did a little bit of an internship with a physical therapy place and just realized, you know, I mean, it's good and everything. And it just wasn't me being in an office, being stuck in one spot. I had to go out and be out and go run and do. So that's what brought me back, back in this direction. Okay. Okay. Um, now, obviously like the podcast, we substance abuse is the main, you know, yep. portion that we talk about, but there's, um, a big mental health portion of that as well. 
And then, you know, talking to our other friend that was an officer or that is an officer, um, a lot of the time those tie in together. So I guess outside of law enforcement and your experience there, did you have any, you know, mental health, substance abuse experience with anybody close to you? Anything that, that drew you that way that kind of pulls at you? Yeah. I mean, um, some of my extended family struggle or still struggle. I have a cousin, he died from an overdose, uh, was this 10, 12 years ago or something like that. Um, a couple of my uncles and things deal with it. And, and I've seen the result of the fallout they've had with, you know, their mom. So my grandma and, and, you know, their siblings and their other family and kind of where they're at and how it's affected them. And have seen, you know, kind of their lives and their family lives, the way that they've kind of shaped and turned comparative to others. Um, and I've kind of seen, and you know, that periodically here and there growing up, um, which is kind of, you know, give me somewhat of an understanding, right? I wasn't as close to as a lot of people. Um, but that's at least some of the personal stuff, at least, you know, that, that I was kind of around, like I said, I was, I was very blessed the way I was brought up. I didn't, um, have a whole lot of directly with me and my, my immediate family, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but those yeah. extended family for sure, um, was was something that helps me relate a little bit more to it um, than maybe normally I would have. Yeah. The balance is definitely good. Like that, uh, you can come to it. Like there's some people that have, you know, way too much personal experience right off the bat, somebody like immediately in their family and it kind of mm -hmm. skews them, uh, but they could be a good officer. And then there's somebody that's completely removed that doesn't have any of it still could be a good officer, but having that where you have a, a general basis of understanding is good. Since you can become a police officer has like, have there been any situations that dramatically changed your perspective or, um, you know, how has that been? Yeah. I mean, there's a handful that's, it's kind of, you know, that have pulled me both ways, you know, in, in the way of, um, being a lot more sympathetic and then in, in other ways being a lot more, I guess, calloused, um, which, which can happen. Um, so I, I try to check, you know, both those, those types of emotions. Um, I mean, one, one, for example, there's, well, there's several, but that brought me a little closer was there was a call I went to. Um, it was somebody who was experiencing an overdose, a fentanyl overdose. So got there. I was first one there, ran up the stairs. Um, and what was really hard to see, right, was he was probably 23 or so. Uh, face was blue and, you know, he had some foam coming out of the mouth. He's obviously had been breathing for a while. Um, his girlfriend or fiance, whoever it was, was trying to do CPR, but he's laying in the bed. Um, and for those who aren't as familiar with CPR, it doesn't work very well in the bed. You can't get quite the compressions and the, you know, the force you need to kind of keep that blood flow. But she was trying and, and the, the worst thing was he had his two or three year old daughter was right there on the bed watching all of this. Um, you know, and so seeing one, the mother of the child, um, and his girlfriend, you know, she has to experience that. And then also right, the kid. Um, so I was able to, you know, tell her, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this over. Just you and your kid get out, right. You go downstairs. Don't, you know, your, your kid doesn't need to see this and nor do you probably want to see it. And that brought me a lot of, you know, the, the saw some of the immediate with that family specifically, right. Of the effect that some of those things can have on the family that are a lot more significant than maybe some people realize. And that's a extreme example, but I've experienced things like that fairly frequently. Um, so yeah. I will say where, where we happen to be, you know, located, uh, and, and I'm sure it's rapidly growing all over the country, but it is getting the opioids and just substances in general, it seems to be just getting out of control. So I'm, I'm assuming those calls, have you definitely seen an increase in those type of calls, you know, I know you had been in, in another state previously, mm -hmm. but the increase in calls over here, whether it be more populated or not, has that, has that, you've seen a steady rise in that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's frequent that we're going to, you know, fentanyl specifically overdoses. Right. Um, and now they're starting to license some other things. There's something new coming out. People aren't familiar or aware yet. They call it Trank. Um, it's, it's similar to fentanyl. Um, however, it's not an opioid. So Narcan doesn't have an effect on it and it causes kind of flesh eating mm. disease. So that's starting to work its way out here too. Um, just for people to be aware of and aware of what they're ingesting. If, if they are, they choose to, uh, to be careful about that. But, uh, there's, there's been a significant, rise. And I mean, I, like I said, I go to them frequently and, and at least, you know, with as prevalent as it is that a lot of people are prepared themselves personally with Narcan. And so as we, as police officers, we all carry it. And, you know, of course all fire and medics and stuff carry it. So a lot of them that we go to, if it's called in while it's happening or just happened, you know, we say, you know, the vast majority of them, they, they make it through. 
Um, it's the ones that, you know, that are alone or, or don't have anybody to call for them that, you know, doesn't turn out as well, but, um, significantly more prevalent over here. Yeah. yeah. I just, um, had a discussion about Narcan and whether, um, whether it's too much of an enabler for people to, mm -hmm. to use, uh, and kind of push the limits of abusing. Uh, but also mm -hmm. it is a giant lifesaver. And as yeah. I think my perspective has shifted a little bit because I, you know, I, we've talked about before I I've had, we've all had issues with our, our mom and, mm. uh, my attitudes, you know, you probably use the best word callous. That's mm. a, a lot of my view is kind of calloused and jaded and thought yeah. kind of the worst in people at some points. And, um, but it's kind of shifted as we've talked to some of the guests that we've had about, you know, using, you can't recover if you're dead yeah. and the, um, I guess implications of that, like if you're going to use, if you can't get help yet using the safest way that you can having stuff like that. So I don't know that's, it's been a little bit of a change for me. Um, mm. and so I'm sure, and I know like that was a big thing as Narcan has become more readily available for officers. I think there was a department in Ohio that they were like adamantly not going to give their officers Narcan. And then they, somebody in their, um, oh man, I was just reading this today. Somebody in their, uh, like city council was trying to mm -hmm. make it a rule that like you could only use Narcan twice. And then after the second time you got a call for somebody that needed, mm -hmm. that was overdosing, they weren't going to save them. Like how, yeah, I, <laughs> it's just kind of inhumane. <laughs> like, yeah. I, pardon me. I, I, I think that if we had adequate treatment available, maybe you could like, if somebody's just not seeking help, but there's just not a reason with the lack of treatment that we have available. So anyway, sorry. That was yeah. Kind of <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. And um, I mean, with it's wild. He said that, you know, that they may only be at least, or at least at the time, right. Two, two times using Narcan and not using it anymore. Cause it's wild. Cause there's, there's been times I've gone to calls and, you know, they've had to take three or four hits depending on, you know, how much, you know, that they've ingested and, and Narcan's only got, you know, only a so long of an effective period. So usually most people need multiple things in Narcan over an extended period of hours, right? Cause it'll wear off and you need more and it'll wear off and you need more. So that's wild that it was just a, a two, two and done. And yeah, I don't remember what city it was or anything, but it was, I was just reading about it today. It was an older article. I'm sure yeah. it's, you know, since Hope changed, but hopefully uh, yeah. yeah, the Midwest, you know, we're lovely out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, you mentioned, uh, how much of a proponent you are to, you know, fitness and your, your physical health. I can recall a time that, uh, you and I met up to work out and you're like, all right, um, you go knock out a hundred pushups. And then we, so we knocked out a hundred pushups and you're like, yeah, this was just a warm up, And then we did <laughs> the workout and I'm like 16, just struggling. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I say all that to say, oh, I know that that's a part of your job that you take very seriously because, you know, yep. it helps you perform the best, but also, uh, what do you do, you know, mentally, what do you do to make sure that you are fit to be able to go out and serve and help people that might be struggling? Yeah. I mean, physical health is, is a part of it. I mean, one thing that helps me, at least when it comes to the physical health portion of it, I mean, it's something I've always, you know, done and, and been interested in. I've played sports my whole life. I mean, I grew up right with Alex and we, we played on the same sports teams for ever since we were kids right and um went through that and then eventually you know throughout college and then you know sports kind of went away and so then i found you know the gym more frequently is something to do because it just it's always something that's made me feel just it's it made me feel good one thing and two um especially with the job being a police officer i think it's important to be physically fit because there's a lot of things you have to do where you become a liability not to yourself but to your partners that you're working with and to the people that you're serving. Um, you know, I mean, if you're not physically fit enough to carry somebody out of a house or out of a certain area or to continue CPR for a long enough period of time, cause that can be tiring. Um, you know, or, you know, a, a handful of other scenarios you come up with where if you're not fit, somebody could die or get seriously hurt because you decided not to take care of yourself. Um, to me, at least in the police profession, I, think it should be a standard that you should be physically fit. And there's a lot of police officers that aren't, unfortunately. Um, yeah. but that, that's one thing that, you know, on top of just enjoying it, make me feel good that that's another motivator for me to go is I don't want to be a liability. 
um, to myself, you know, I want to come home to, to my family. I want my buddies that I work with to go home to their families. I want people that are out there that I'm trying to help, you know, to go home to their families too. You know, if, if there's something that I can do about it, I want to be able to be physically capable of it. Um, and then it has a mental health component on it as well, for sure for me. I mean, that's one of the places that, you know, I feel like there's nothing going on, right? It's that kind of that mental break from everything happening where I can just kind of focus on me and what I'm doing and, and just, just be working. Um, and so, I mean, that's a big, huge thing. Cause if you're not, you know, mentally or physically able to help yourself, you can't help anybody else. Right. So it's one of those things you got to take care of yourself first so you can take care of other people. Cause you don't take care of yourself, right? You're just, everybody's going to drown. So yeah. I think if we, we can generalize it for the statement and just kind of maybe your opinion overall in the police profession. Uh, now you, you said that, you know, you had that story with, you had to use the Narcan and um, is there any other specific training that you received when it comes to getting calls from, you know, overdoses or, you know, people that are clearly having like maybe a mental health crisis or an addiction, you know, they're an addict, yeah. maybe they're just manic. Is there, do they have you got any specialized training for that or is it kind of just used your protocol type? Thing? Yeah. I mean, we have kind of similar to what a lot of other agencies have. We have the normal medical portion of it, right. Where it comes to, you know, overdoses or any other medical calls where, you know, if they're not breathing things, it kind of, you know, essentially results to CPR and you know, just keep that blood pump and the oxygen flowing until medics can get there and take over and do their thing. Um, especially, but when it comes to mental, mentally, you know, people that are maybe if they're on drugs, they're a manic episode, um, or if they just have, you know, mental health issues where they're just, you know, having kind of a break and, and they're, they're not reasonable. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much you can do, you know, they, they have really good training where I'm at, uh, more so I think than a majority of other departments, which is really nice. Um, you know, CIT training, crisis intervention t- training, we have a specialized unit that's, you know, for negotiators. We have another unit that's just for mental health calls, related calls to try to communicate with them. Um, but generally protocol, right. is trying to use time distance and shielding, um, trying to use as much time as you can keep that distance to keep you safe. Cause there's a lot more distance we have, right. Whatever actions they take, there's a little more buffer on what we may have to do. It keeps everybody a little safer. Um, and then whatever core cover we might need, if, if, if at all to, again, keep everybody safe as we can, of course, trying to talk to them, trying to reason with them, trying to come to a conclusion or a, some sort of a, you know, a mutual agreement. And unfortunately sometimes, right. When, when people are in those types of states of mind, there's the only way thing we can do is we have to try to physically take them into custody, right. To get them to the hospital, need the help they need. And that's most, you know, that's the majority of training we have a lot of medical training afterwards with what position to put them in, what things to look for. You know, we'll, we'll call for medics to stage. And, you know, even before we go and contact them, we'll be talking to them and we'll have the medics come and be about a block away before we even go and, you know, try to take them into custody and get them in the hospital so that, that you know, you got medics on hand, you know, within 30 seconds of having them under control. Um, so th- those kinds of things, uh, but nothing super specialized or anything like that. I think seeing, I think we heard from the other officer, the CIT and the mental health, the the crisis teams and things like that, it seems mm-hmm. to be to becoming a standard across the country, if yeah. you will. Uh, when I did the uh, city council uh, meeting, one of the big things they talked about there with the, the local PD was their steps and what they're doing to um, the crisis intervention and all that kind of stuff. And mm. one of the things they talked about was the ability to take somebody in when they're having a mental health crisis or they're in danger to themselves. Uh, the local PD thinks that the threshold is too high uh, currently in Washington state where like, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you know what I'm talking mm. about, but um, basically if somebody could be a danger to themselves or they need to be taken to the hospital there's, they have to meet a like criteria before you can physically take them against their will. Um, and, and the local PD thinks that that threshold is too high and that they're allowing people that need help to, to walk away and that mm. they need to, it needs to be lowered a little bit so they can help more people. Is that kind of what you're seeing? I, I don't know if that's a state standard or if that's by department. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a state standard. Some, some departments may, you know, interpret it differently because it's all its interpretation. The the wording they use in the, the law, right, is that they're in immediate danger to themselves or others. 
And mm-hmm. again, the word immediate can mean different things, different people. Um, but where I think they're coming from, it's too high. And, and I agree in some cases that there's someone that obviously needs help. You know, for example, there's someone, you know, you have a guy walking around, you know, in, in shorts and no shirt, screaming and talking to himself and rolling around on the ground. And obviously in some sort of mental health crisis, which, you know, is dangerous to him and other people potentially. Right. And we can go and try to talk to him and help him. But the sense of the, the, the immediacy of his threat is there's nothing immediate, right? He's not immediate. He's not currently in danger. You know, he's not currently in danger anybody else right at that exact moment. So a lot of times we have to just be like, try to offer resources, try to do what we can, but ultimately we have to be, you know, we, we don't have the, the lawful authority to, to force him, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll call fire department medics to the scene. And sometimes people are a little more workable, you know, in those situations with, with the fire department and the police, which is understandable. Um, so sometimes we'll do that, but a lot of times, yeah, I mean, those people, we have to just let it go. Um, mm-hmm. same with even people who are under the influence of drugs, right. You know, you know, uh, multi, you know, t- so many times family members will call in welfare checks on a family member of theirs because, you know, they, they've ingested whatever type of drugs and they're, they're acting crazy or they're not answering their phone, you know, because they're, you know, they're passed out or things like that. And we'll go check on them. And as long as they're not like unconscious and not breathing, then we're like, all right, well, you're an adult and you know, you're not in immediate danger because you're still alive and you're fine. You refuse to be tra- you know, transported. So, um, it, it does make it a little bit more difficult because there's a lot of people we come across that we know need that help, but, um, threshold, right. Is, is fairly high. And, and I think the argument partially for that is that, you know, people also have rights, you know, to not be taken by the police against their will to receive medical treatment or whatever else. And I, I think that partial, partially that law is, is to preserve some of those rights. They don't want the cops, right. Also having such a low bar where they can go around and just, snatching up anybody against their will and toss them in hospitals just because they're you know a little off. So um, it's one of those balances, I think with just like with everything, right. It's kind of hard to hit that sweet spot sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I guess as a younger officer, it's, I, I feel like we have a different perspective because of our generation and the things mm-hmm. that we've witnessed coming up. And typically when we're talking about stigmas or talking about, um, I guess just negative views, it's, it's from, you know, the older guys that have been doing the same thing forever. Do you mm-hmm. run into that? I mean, I know like you have two different departments to pull from, but, um, just in your general experience in dealing with officers, uh, cause you know, from our conversations with Matt yeah. previously, previously, and then talking to you, like, obviously, um, there's great officers that just want to do the right thing and, and help people. But I'm sure there's other officers who are like, get, you know, have this negative view and just want to get people off the streets or, you know, do whatever. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's for sure that, especially, I mean, especially the guys that have been doing it for 20, 25, 30 years, right. They've, they've been dealing with essentially, you know, the, the same stuff every single day for 25 years of the people having the same issues, needing the same help. And, to, to them and, and even to me and the younger officers, you know, at a, at a point you're just like, it becomes kind of, you know, if you, you've got kids, right. And they, they keep doing the same shit over and over and over and over again. Eventually you're just like, just come on, figure it out, man. <laughs> you know, but that's yeah. different. Cause it's, it's the same person. This one time it's different people that, uh, you know, need help maybe the first time or second time. Um, and so you get, Again, you know, that word, that jaded, calloused kind of thing to those situations where you have someone who's maybe been you know, using drugs and they're, they need help for whatever reason. And you've dealt with this hundreds and hundreds or thousands of times. And you go to this person and you're just like, all right, I know here's the options. You know, you go to jail, you go to the hospital, or you just quit causing a disturbance and we're just going to leave you alone. So hurry up and pick a choice and we're, we're going to go with that kind of thing, right? Um, which then doesn't help whoever that is that needs that help. Um, and part of it comes with the minimal staffing and the high call load. So a lot of times guys too, are they're, they're salty and they're just wanting to try to get that done and handled and move on to the next thing. Cause they've got, you know, another handful of things that are, that are going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, so you for sure get that. Well, talking about like the high call volume and, um, I mean, I don't want to say that some of, some of the mental health intervention, some of the, you know, substance abuse stuff, uh, it's not necessary. Like a, a police officer is a first responder, but mm. I think 
part of like the def- defund the uh, police movement a couple years ago, that whole thing was not right, but kind of right. And the idea of like, we do need more of these other things too. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be a police officer's job to be, you know, a, a count, you know, counselor, mental health, like doing all, all these different yeah. things. Mm-hmm. You, that's not really what you're there for. Yeah. It is an additional piece of what you do. And we're grateful for that. Um, but do you see, I, I know Washington state, uh, probably falls along those lines that are, are going that direction, but do you see more resources being given to the department in those areas, like social work and uh, mental health professionals being available, or is that not a thing yet? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it kind of is, uh, again, with the, some of these different mental health and crisis teams are putting together. Um, some departments have them, the larger departments, we usually have them. Um, but a lot of the other ones don't, cause again, it costs a lot of money and it, you know, the, it's the sad fact of, you know, that certain things cost money and a lot of times people don't want to spend money. Right. And so oh. they just kind of settle for, for what it is. And that's, that's part of the issue with instituting some more higher level professionals that are more full time. Cause it's going to cost a lot of money. And so that's why they'll a lot of times be like, Oh, the, the cops can just handle it. Cause we'll just kind of, you know, but they're, they're going to be there anyway. And we don't have time to get someone out. We don't want to pay someone to do it. So the police will do it. And, yeah. um, you know, with the whole defund movement, you know, again, like you're saying, I understand kind of where they're coming from, right? Hey, maybe if we take a little bit from the police, we can invest it in, you know, you know, psychological help and these other things that people need, which is works. But, um, a lot of times the police showing up first and people want the police to perform better and to do the right thing and to, you know, to just be all around better in order to do that they need more training and more training it, means more money and you need more you know, money. <laughs> yeah. It's money. So it's, it's always, it, it, it comes down to money with almost yeah. anything. Right. Um, sure. you know, if, if there's an unlimited amount of money to be thrown into a, a police department, I'm sure they could have all sorts of, you know, psychological staff on hand and medical staff yeah. on hand that are 24 seven staffed. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be awesome, but you know, it's, it's something that's yeah. unfortunately it's, not a reality currently. And, you know, maybe, maybe someday, but, yeah, I'm that's one thing Matt um, talked about was they have pretty much like a, a squad car set up for that. So it's mm-hmm. not an off, there'll be an officer in there driving, but then they'll, that car will always have, you know, a mental health professional, somebody mm-hmm. there that that's like a crisis intervention team, essentially, like they'll yep. show up for those calls. Um, so that was really cool. And I didn't mean like that I'm in the camp of defunding the police, but <laughs> no, no, no. like, I, I think that the the premise, if you look past the kind of like rioty mm-hmm. bullshit was that cops are doing too much of these yeah. things that there should also be. And, and the idea that you can pull from an under already, un, I don't know. I don't want to get into all that, but it's no, just, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a lot. And I know you guys are tapped. I've told the story before, but when like the time that mom was missing for a long time, I remember I had finally gotten in touch with somebody uh, from Snohomish County. And, uh, he was, um, he was really cool. He was like, oh yeah, I know Diana. And he's like, I haven't seen her in a while. Let me go try to find her. And like, and then he called me, he had like his work cell or whatever, but then he gave me his personal cell. And then he would just text me every once in a while. He's like, Hey, I ran into your mom. Like, Hey, you know, she's doing okay. And so like, as at the time, obviously I was very appreciative, Mm -hmm. but now looking back, I'm just amazed at the fact that, you know, this guy's gotta be. I know what you guys do, like how much you juggle and how, you know, how many calls you're taking night. And then you have to go do reports immediately after, you know, at the end of the shift and for him to have the time to text me and tell me like, Hey, like I'm just some, you know, some person's kid. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know me from Adam. And so mm-hmm. that was really cool. Yeah, it's cool. There, there's a lot of cops like that out there, you know, and, and that's how it goes, right? There's just like any profession, anything you do, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's people that are good at what they do. There's people that are bad at what they do. And um sounds like at least he, he's one of the good ones and, and that's great. And especially with people that have family members suffering from, you know, different addictions and things. Um, I think those that follow up and sometimes just that little bit of extra effort sounds like, right, can can go a long way. Um, yeah. uh, and I've heard you guys talk about before on the podcast, which um, which, which is cool to hear, right, is that, some people didn't realize, I think it was just this last one I listened to. I can't remember what her name was. Um, but something she talked Yeah, Kat. Yep. Um, 
talked about how she realized all of a sudden when, when she got clean, right. That she realized how much she cared about other people that, you know, were suffering from addiction and that those people that when she was suffering from addiction actually cared about her and she had a lot of people that cared about her. And that was a, a big realization. And I think that's, I mean, again, I could echo that message as a police officer. I deal with, again, families all the time that are calling and concerned about their loved ones and their friends and wanting us to search for them and doing everything they can to find them. And it's, it's frequent that, that these people that, you know, if they're listening to yourself and from addiction, you know, there's people that care about you, regardless of what you did or, or what's happening um, or how terrible you feel. Um, you know, that I'm sure there's, plenty of people out there that are looking and searching for you and want the best for you and they want want to help you out and again as a police officer i deal with that every day of people saying please help me please help me my family my friends you know i'm concerned about them so they're they're out there yeah Yeah. definitely i want to circle back um it just reminded me and i'm i won't call out so i heard from another officer um when i was in the process of of looking into that of becoming an officer um there was an officer that I talked to and he was very, I guess you could say jaded or calloused against um, the new training protocols at the Academy Mm. and um, the officer that died in Everett uh, that was shot and killed by, I I don't want to speak out of turn about it, but I think the person was having like a manic episode. Uh, The training, the, the training, the old training would have never allowed him to be in that situation, but he was a younger officer and the new training basically dictated like, Hey, like, come at him with your hands up. Like, Hey, I'm a friend, you know, like we have somebody coming to help you calling a mental health professional. They had called a mental health professional, I think. Um, and he approached this clearly manic person and the guy just pulled out a gun and shot him. (laughs) Like, so, so there, I, I can see the contrast is to where traditional policing is needed. Like you've got to take the safety steps to make sure that you go home to your family because, you know, people want to say like, oh, cops are just, they're just mean. It's like, okay, well, it's not necessarily true. They're trained a certain way to go home, right? Mm -hmm. Like their job is to, your whole job is to go home at the end of the day. And I think that it's um, like Jordan said with Dominic, he, after we got off the call with Matt, he said, man, I just wish there was more cops like him. And I said, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think there are, I, I know there are. I think that it's just um, the one bad egg thing, right? You get the yeah. one rotten apple that just okay. rotten, you know, makes everyone seem that way. Uh, but the tr- going back to the training, I think that we need to, as a society, understand that the training you guys go through is there for a reason and that we can only take so many steps to help people before they have to help themselves. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. But I just, it just blew my mind. Cause like what you said, the whole shield thing, I'm like, and I'm playing it in my mind. I'm obviously not a cop. I haven't received the training. I don't know what he was told to do. I don't know if he did everything the right way, whatever, but uh, it just, that was a mental health crisis and an officer died. So, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just, there's just so much contrast compare and contrast. There's so many situations you just never know. Yeah. And I mean, and I think, you know, again, when, you know, people look at police officers in certain videos where they, they, they feel like they're being overly aggressive and too violent for a certain situation. I think it comes with, like you're saying, trying to go home and, and each time, you know, that we see and hear of a police officer that gets killed in the line of duty and, you know, there's you know, lots of body cam and things out there of those incidents happening. And every time you see that and hear about that, regardless of where, where this officer was, it's almost as if it happened to you or one of your friends, right? Cause they're, they're a police officer, just like you are. And that happened to them. It could happen to you the exact same way. So you see lots of these situations that go South quickly. Right. And so that's why sometimes the officers act or as aggressive as they are, because they've been in, been in or seen situations just like that where, you know, an officer ended up getting killed in that same scenario. So they may right reach, you know, they're, they're trying to talk to you and you put your hands in your pockets, tell them don't put your hands in your pockets. They put them in, they might grab and, you know, yank your arms out or, or whatever and be kind of aggressive and violent. You know, people are like, what, what are you doing? You know, it's like, cause I, you know, they're like, you know, I, I've seen countless videos. Officers get shot when someone says, you know, don't put your hands in your pockets. They pull out a gun and pull out a knife and, you know, that happens. So that's sometimes why they do it. Um, you know, the Everett officer, at least I, I, I remember the, the case was he was at a Starbucks and mm-hmm. the guy was in his car and he's transferring guns from one car to another. Um, mm. So he's like 
that's weird. Went out to talk to him and he's talking to him a little bit. Ended up finding out his name, found out he's a convicted felon. He couldn't have guns. Um, that's when he was going to kind of detain the guy for what's going on. And he apparently didn't want to go back to prison. That's when I started fighting and got into a tussle and, you know, they gotcha. shot, him, okay, see, shot him in the head yeah. three times. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you clarified that because mm-hmm. the story I was told was that it was a lack of training because it was a mental health thing. And I, mm-hmm. I've never really looked into it, but um, that makes a lot more sense, you know, but I think that again, the whole, I can appreciate their friendly approach. You know, the, the, uh, you, I, I know you, I know other cops in, in, in this whole process of when I was looking at becoming a cop, the, everybody I met was super nice. Right. And like, that's kind of what you want in that situation. I feel like, you know, maybe obviously things could have been done differently. And, yeah. uh, I, I mean, that's aside from the point, but I just, I just want people to realize that, like Jordan said, you guys are overworked and the additional load of mental health and, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It just, we just need more resources. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah, is what it is. It just comes down to more resources. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, no, I just real quick. I say, yeah, there's something to be said though, about, um, being kind and calm as a police officer with people you come in contact with. Cause that does works wonders also. Um, and it's also important to take, you know, the, the totality of the circumstances and reality, just because someone's reaching in their pockets, a lot of times in the situation, it's actually probably not a dangerous situation, right? Um, you know, some officers treat it as such and they just treat it black and white. Oh, hands are pocket. I got to freak out. Um, you know, there's something said to be being able to be aware of what's actually going on and taking all the circumstances and, and, and adjusting those and a lot of times being calm and being relaxed and being respectful is significantly better approach than someone yelling. Cause in my mind, if somebody yelling for any other reason other than just it's loud and they need to communicate clear so you can hear them, it's just, a, it's a sign of weakness to me. If someone's yelling at someone just when they're standing right in front of them, they can hear them. You're just yelling because you're trying to compensate for some other issues you have. There's, there's no reason to yell you know, other than that. So you know, there's something you said about being calm and kind and yep. communicating. So sorry, George, go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to say, I think with all of it, there's a, there's definitely a spectrum. Like you have to think about both, like you take it to one extreme and cops are throwing everybody down and, you know, super violent with everybody. And the other extreme, you have a lot more officers involved with shootings and not going home. Yeah. And so finding that balancing act and then the, the three of us are talking, I have police experience just from the military, but mm. like, you're the only police officer. So the, like most people don't think about if their job entailed carrying a gun every day, worry about if you're going home, I guess, circling it back to, uh, the substance abuse and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, another thing from that, uh, talking to those officers locally here, they said something about August 1st that, it's going to be um, what they call it. Minor possession is now arrestable offense. Like you guys weren't able to arrest people previously for having any sort of possession. If it, I, I mean, I don't know the law, but that's yeah. changing again. And I know they changed that because obviously the jails and everything were probably just overflowing with uh, possession or, or whatever it is. But have you heard a reasoning behind it? And and I'm yeah. I'm kind of mm-hmm. I'm for it because I've been down to downtown Seattle. I've been to my local Fred Meyer and there's a dude leaning against the wall with a needle in his arm and, you know, you know what I mean? And and I think that right now you guys can't do anything about that. Correct. Yeah. Nothing. Um, yeah. I mean, where, where it all stemmed from originally, um, where it first became, I mean, air quotes legal, um, still illegal, but we can't charge him with it was, there's a a case where it was the state V Blake, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, the cops always joke about this excuse. You know, a lot of times we'll, we'll catch people dump on them and stuff and they'll, you know, in their pockets and they'll say, they're not my pants. You know, of course they're not your pants, you know, kind of a thing, a joke. But that actually ended up working here in Washington State. So as a case, drug possession, guy said, these aren't my pants. Went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. State Supreme Court said, you know, you have to have knowledge of the possession and um, long story short, you know, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but essentially it came from that case law call it the Blake decision is essentially possession of any drug, just it's a user amount 
they have to be given a referral. I mean, this part's it's good, but I mean, you know, a referral for mental health substance abuse three times, and after the third time, then they can be charged with the possession. However, there's no way to track those referrals, um, and officers didn't issue them because it was just more work for them to issue their referral, um, and so it just essentially got to the point where if somebody had drugs and we found drugs on them, we just you know, take them and book them for destruction, but that was it. So then people became much more blatant, right, with their open air use because they know, like, they can't do anything about it. Um, and recently, and I, and again, I don't know the exact specifics on why this is, but that decision, for whatever reason, is ending, I believe, on July 23rd. And then there's a specific enforcement date you can start again where it becomes a gross misdemeanor for possession of, of, you know, illegal drugs that officers can enforce, um, again, arresting people and charging them with those things. When, when you say referral, um, what, what does that entail? Like when they get, when they get that referral, because I mean, when we talked to, mm-hmm. to Cherie, um, she could get people into treatment, you know, maybe in a week and that's pulling mm-hmm. strings. So like, there's not, there's resources there, but mm-hmm. the amount of resources versus the need is disgusting. Yes. Um, yeah. So like, what does that referral actually help or do? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really just essentially a pamphlet with resources if they so choose to use them as opposed to like, Hey, someone's going to reach out and contact you to set something up. It's like, Hey, here's these resources for mental health and substance abuse counseling. Um, you know, if you need to use them to, to kind of help you get better, which, which is great to give them those resources. Um, but a lot of the times, um, right, as, as I'm sure a lot of people and you all might be familiar, that even with those resources offered, if they're not ready or they're depending on their situation, right, they may not even – they just ball it up and throw it away right there because that's that. So it's good to give them the resources, but it, it was just one of those things that, you know, at least when it came to enforcing it and it made it non-existent and then the open-air drug use became much more apparent. Yeah. Um, so – is there a reason that, do you know the reason that that was overturned? I, I was just curious. They didn't mention why that's changing. They just mentioned it was. Yeah. From what I understand, it, it wasn't necessarily overturned as much as it had like a potentially, you know, if the terminology, right, again, I'm not a lawyer, right? Uh, like a sunset clause where it was, the, the decision was in effect as case law for, you know, X amount of time. And then now with the way that drug use has gotten, you know, you know, around the state and especially the greater Seattle area. And, um, I think a lot of city councils and, um, you know, county commissioners and citizens and the public have been like, we need to do something to try to combat this. Cause right now the police can't do anything about it. Um, and so I think the culmination of that has led to, you know, you know, cities and counties and the state kind of saying, Hey, you know what, we're fine with this kind of going away but I don't know if it's necessarily overturned. Um, I guess I don't know what the right terminology is, but no, it's, it's a buildup, right. Of, of everybody realizing what a, you know, an issue it's, it's becoming, um, and how prevalent, you know, the, the substance abuse is, and it's just continuously getting more and more severe. Well, it's interesting to me, like the, the conversation around it, because if you look at the argument for decriminalization, decriminalization, it, there's, um, I can't remember. There's a couple countries in Europe that have fully done it. And, um, mm. you see these great results of people actually getting treatment. They're taking the funds that were spent on, you know, I think it's 50 billion a year spent mm. on the war on drugs still. And there's obvious opioid epidemic. There's obvious problems still. Um, but then you look at examples like that where the rules have gone lax and there's not more resources. So then people are just, using or even like the case for Portland, I think everything, I don't know when it happened, but everything got decriminalized there. Mm -hmm. And then you just have this rush of people that know that they're not going to get in trouble going and taking over Portland, essentially. Like, yes. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, not argument, but like just dialogue, because I think on one hand provided the resources and the education about it, it can be beneficial. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand, if there's like, there's got to be the support there still or some Correct. sort of correction. Yeah. And, and I don't know, you know, cause I, I don't know as much. I've, I've heard of that. There's a lot of other countries decriminalize and things going well. And I just don't know the, I guess the logistics behind it. Cause it could be, and again, this is just me guessing, right? Cause you know, I could see if it's decriminalized 
And then, like you said, you know, there's tons of money going into it, but now it's criminalized that if people are, are using or, you know, get caught with it or something, they aren't necessarily criminally charged, but maybe they're forced into some sort of, uh, you know, substance abuse recovery or something like that. That's mandated. Um, and maybe that has an effect on it. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't, and that's, I'm not, I'm not sure that's, again. that's the only thing I can see that might work here again with, you know, the, the being able to charge and arrest people for simple possession of drugs is I don't, think necessarily the criminal charge in itself is what fixes the issue, right? It's the, it's the treatment and the resources. And I think maybe stemming from that criminal charge is maybe the opportunity for a court order to be imposed for mandatory substance abuse with the alternative. If you don't do this, you'll go to jail for the criminal charge, but you can avoid the criminal charge by receiving treatment. Right. And I, I can see that as a, as a way to, you know, mandate. So people have to get treatment even if they aren't wanting to, and maybe that'll kind of help turn a handful of people and doing that as opposed to a criminal aspect is using the criminal arm as a way to direct it over there. So so. It's almost like a, a forced, not forced, but there's almost like a um, detox by proxy of just having the interaction with the police and having mm-hmm. time where you can't be using. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, kn- I know there's times where I would like pray for her mom to get arrested because then it would like force her to get, get clean. Yeah. Um, so I think that that definitely is part of it. And I know, mm-hmm. um, talking to other people with family members, like that's something that they think about too. Well, at least, you know, I know people can get drugs in prison. Uh, yeah. You can get anything anywhere, mm-hmm. but it, it offers the opportunity to maybe that's another step. Uh, I think it was sure. when we we're talking to him, he talked about the single largest, um, drug rehabil- rehabilitation center in California was the prison system because mm. they had like the most, I mean, it was the biggest resource for people getting clean. I think it was something we were talking about. Yeah. Like, but, yeah. 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 I can see that. Cause like you said, and then they, they don't have the, the opportunity to, to use in the, the same crowd they surround themselves with. Um, there's a guy I knew that was, he'd, he'd just gotten out of jail and um, was, we said one of the things he learned in there and things going through some substance abuse counseling while he's in there was, you know, once you get out, if you want to stay clean or you really want to make this change, that you have to cut out all the people and all the activities and all the places in which you used to be using and and influenced by, because those things will just right trigger that that response in your brain of saying, "I I need this." And so mm-hmm. he he he's able to you know through some help with his family and things, right? It was always super great to have that support if you have it. Um, but just he had to cut those people out cold turkey and just not text him, not call him, not talk to him, not hang out with him or anything. Cause otherwise he'd fall back into it. Um, and that's, that's what happened with my cousin. Why he OD'd he got clean and he got back with the wrong people. Right. And he took what he usually, you know, his, his normal, you know, hit what he usually took. And, and that was it. And so I think, yeah, yeah I mean, going to jail like might I, be the, the, I feel like that's a common, a common thing is, um, when, when it comes to like overdoses where people don't make it is it's usually people, and I don't know this as fact, but it seems like <clears throat> it's people who got clean and then their first time using again, they went back to the amount they used to use and it mm-hmm. kills them. Yep. And, and I feel like that's, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate and it just shows a tolerance, you know, how, mm-hmm. how much people, if, if what you were using at one point could kill a normal person, it's like, man, you know, yeah. like that's, yeah just blows my mind and also that whole war on drugs thing if and if that thing if they were to do that here where they took the money on the the war on drugs or 50 billion a year and they were to take that and they were to simply put 75 percent of that money into just more treatment facilities more mental health professionals more recovery options i think the amount of people that want to get help is worth the justification like yeah it would it would help so many people because like Jordan said, when we were talking to, um, uh, Sheree, she, even if people wanted to help, even if people wanted the help and they came to her and they're like, I want to get help. You know, if she was lucky, she could find somebody a bed in a, in a week and who yeah. knows what could happen in a week, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, but. no, I agree a hundred per hundred percent. That's, that's the thing. But the unfortunate thing is that I think there's a lot of people, right. that have the ability to control that money. They have other things that they want to do with that money. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of these things may not directly affect them. And so it's not as big a priority, um, as it should be, cause it should be a huge priority, especially now. First, if there's anything you could say to those that are listening that maybe have family members struggling, 
uh, with substance abuse, mental health issues, what would you say to them? Or maybe that they themselves are struggling. And then two, if there's any resources, books you've read, anything you'd recommend for, for people. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I'd say, I mean, coming for me is, is one, find people who support you and they're there for you. Um, and if you don't have them, find them, you know, if you, if you're around people that are you using you for, you know, whether it's drugs or just to hang out at your house or a place to crash or something like that, right? You, you can tell which people are genuine. Um, try to c- start cutting those people out of your life. And it might be hard because you might have known them for a while and, and they're the only people you have and you want to do that. But, you know, if it's if somebody's dragging you down, you got to make, make the choice that's right for you. Um, and the other huge thing, I think, at least it's, it's, it's helped me a lot and, um, is just taking ownership, right. Of, of everything that you do. I love listening to, to Jocko Willink. I'm sure you guys probably heard of him. Um, yep. so again, a book you mentioned too, extreme ownership, uh, awesome book. It's kind of a lot of leadership perspectives, but the same thing I've come to learn in my life that as soon as, as you let go of your ownership and your responsibility for something is, 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 is when you lose control of it, right? So it's when you put that, what's going on on somebody else and you say, I can't help it. And you just let it roll. Right. Um, you're, you're the only one you, you can control what you can control. There's, there's a lot of things out of your control, but you can control what you do and you control what you think. Um, and you can control how you, how you live your life and do what you want to do. And, and it is hard. I, I don't want to say it as in like, it's easy enough to like, Hey, just, just stop, you know, it's that easy. Cause it's not right. It's, yeah. it's a hundred percent, not even close to that. It's probably one of the hardest things anybody could ever do is, is, kind of kicking some of these, these addictions. Um, but just understanding and not saying it's this person's fault or that person's fault, or it's because of, you know, the situation that, you know, that I've been placed in or that I grew up in. And, and those things all do have an influence. I don't want to minimize those. Those are all completely legitimate reasons why somebody might be where they're at, but having the ability to say, you know what, you know, all these things were stacked against me and I got put in this bad situation and, you know, I made some choices that, that had to get me here and I need to make some choices that, that can get them out. I think that people can find a lot of freedom, a lot of power, um, and take, taking that ownership, um, and not doing it in a sense of blaming yourself and, and pitying yourself and knocking yourself down, but just, just saying, look, you know, I, you know, I, nobody forced me to, to do this and nobody forced me to make these decisions, but I can make the right decisions now to get out of this. Um, and that's a, a great way to, to not have that victim mentality and just wallow in it and say, there's no hope for me, right? There's always hope for everybody. Everybody's got a way to get out and do it. They've just yeah. got to say, you know, it's up to me. There's, here, so. there's a calming effect though with that too. Like mm-hmm. when, when things are spiraling and you find that thing that you can grab onto and you mm-hmm. own that thing and then that kind of gives you some momentum. So yeah. I think that's, you know, awesome advice. Another uh, quote that, that's, you know, reminds me of that is you can't control the things that happen. You can only control the thing, the way that you respond to them. And I think that's another, you know, thing to think about. Like you said, you can't control all the other bullshit that's kind of out there, but you can control, you know, you in that moment and how you react. So, um, yeah, Yeah. we thank you for, for coming on man and, uh, your perspective and, um, you know, as, as things develop, we'd love to talk to you more and, uh, Yeah. yeah, since, Dom's not here. I'll go ahead and say we love you all. If you or anyone you know are struggling with addiction, please reach out to the National Substance Abuse Hotline at 1-800-662-4357 for additional help. And remember, you're not alone.